You know, we see it in the news on a nearly daily basis. Whether it's something that's stated outright or something that's just sort of implied by uh, some particular story or the way a story is told, an issue is presented to us. We see in our world, for lack of a better way of wording it, a skewed view of children. As an obvious examples of that we could point to, we could go to those stories we see sometimes that completely shock us and sadness where we see children abused verbally, physically, sexually, emotionally, and on and on it goes. There's so many children in our world who face that on a regular and some even on a constant basis. And some of those accounts are, in fact, so shocking that they even make the news. We, we see it on sometimes even national news because of just how horrific it is. And it saddens us when we see that. That's only one way we have a skewed view. Another is in the realm of abortion. I, some say, I don't really want a child. I, I don't like something about the child that, I, that I'm carrying. And so I just abort that child. I move on with no shame whatsoever. If you haven't been paying attention to the news lately, you may not realize that we are living in a country, in a society that is literally striving for the designer baby. And if a fetus does not match a standard that's sort of a designer baby standard, then our world says terminate the pregnancy and move on with no shame whatsoever because a child is not perfect. And so we should strive only for perfection. But those views are only one, one type of skewed view. There are others that are more subtle than that. Sometimes in a home that seems normal, you can have a skewed view of children because instead of it really being a real household as God would have it, the children are left to run everything. They're given few, if any, boundaries. And in reality, the children run the show. And even worse are when parents don't just not give boundaries, but even back up the children and say, whatever my child wants to do, that's just the way it's going to be. And everybody else had just better cater to my child. And so their child grows up thinking that the axis of the world goes right to the top of their head. But there are other things we can consider. But those are enough for us to remember that we live in a world that has a skewed, a warped, and ungodly view of children. And as Christians, sometimes I fear we can have a view that's incorrect as well. Maybe not to those extremes. I know I point out extremes to begin with just to prove a point. But sometimes we can lean towards those if we're not careful, simply by how we view children, what we say about children. But tonight I want us to consider the Bible's view, God's view of children. And this may seem like sort of an odd sermon, odd topic for a sermon, but I'm preaching this for a couple of reasons. One is it is a biblical topic. In fact, for the next few minutes, we're not even going to scratch the surface as to how much the Bible has to say about children in families and in the world. But I also want us to see, by preaching this lesson, by studying this subject, that when we remove the Bible from society, it changes our view of everything, including even something as basic as children. Tonight I want us to notice, though, four things that the Bible makes clear about children and that we should see when we look at children through God's eyes or through the eyes of Scripture. In the first place, I want us to notice that children are a person from the beginning. Even in the womb, God considers the person who is in the womb as a person. And a very special person. One with personality. We may, in our world, call what's in the womb an it. We may say it's just a fetus. 
You may have even seen news stories and other uh, interviews and other things describing it as potential human life. But God has clearly stated it is life. It is a person with personality, even, even though it's yet unborn. There are several examples in Scripture we could go to to point that out. The prophet Jeremiah comes to mind first. Jeremiah had to understand it because God specifically said it to him. In Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 4, God said to the prophet, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. I find that passage significant because really it says, even before Jeremiah was conceived, God had a purpose for that life that was to come. But then in the verse it says, In the womb, before you were born, I consecrated you. I set you apart for a specific purpose. Jeremiah was a person. He had personality in the womb. David understood it as well. In Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14, David wrote words that praise God, but notice how he praised Him in those verses. For you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. I like that passage because it reminds us that David is praising God, but he's also stating that one of the wonderful works of God is that God forms that life in the womb. And David said, you made me, you knitted me in my mother's womb. Not just you knit something, you knitted me and formed me. John the Baptist may give us one of the most explicit statements in Scripture, clearest statements in Scripture, that God considers that in the mother to be a person. You recall that when Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth, the mother of John, were both pregnant and visiting with one another, Elizabeth said in Luke chapter 1 and verse 44, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt with or for joy. The word translated baby there in Luke 1, 44, brephos is the word, is used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe a baby out of the womb. In fact, it's the word you'll find when Jesus is born as a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. It's found elsewhere in the New Testament to, to, to speak of, excuse me, a small child. But it's the same word here. The baby leapt to my womb. And did you notice who recorded that statement? Not who said it, but who recorded it. It's Luke. So Elizabeth, a doctor, Luke, and the Holy Spirit all tell us this is a baby. And even Jesus Himself shows us that. There's a very interesting wording found in the birth account of Jesus. And I want you to take notice. It's a passage that all of us know very well, but I want you to think about the implication of it. It's in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. It's a verse we hear quite often where we're told, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they were together, she was found to be with child. From the Holy Spirit. I find that interesting, don't you? The Bible does not say she was with fetus. The Bible does not say she was with potential life. She was with child of the Holy Spirit. Every time a woman becomes with child, that is a person. That is a baby. The baby is a person. And that is a person with a life to be lived within the will and the purposes of God. And yet we live in a time where we say it's just a thing. It's just disposable. I fought against myself for the last, in fact, about the last 24 hours. 
This lesson was ready, and I was ready to present it, and then I came across an article last night. I'm not going to read it in its entirety. I'm just going to reference it. There's an article that was written by a a man who was a pre-med student who in his studies, I guess you would call it job shadowing, they were required to go visit with several doctors in whatever fields they wanted to, general practice. And he decided in his studies to go to an abortion clinic. He stated in his introduction to the article that prior to that, he was pro-choice, It was the woman's right, all the things we hear quite often. And he even said, and you can take this for whatever he means by it, and I'm not sure what he means by it completely, he even said, if you want to label me politically, I'm I'm, I'm on the left. Whatever you want to take that to mean, that's fine. And then the reason I'm not reading the article is, he went into extreme detail as to what he saw. I will not repeat it here because we have children in the room and out of simply respect for the pulpit. But he simply stated, here is what I saw. And he ended his article with these words. I will never be pro-choice again. I am pro-life because what I saw was a life. We live in a time, we need to remember, that God's view is that that is a person. It may be something that can't live on its own for a little while, but it's a person. That's God's view of children. Number two, God's view of children is that they are a blessing. That baby is born and we ooh and we ah and we are just, it's the cutest little thing and then they get in the way. Isn't that the way we treat it? Isn't that the way we treat children? We love them until they get in our way. And how sad that is. Raising children is difficult. They are not convenient all the time. Yes, they do cost us. Amen. They do cost us in money, in time, in effort. But did you notice the passage we read together a few minutes ago as Ethan read for us? Children are a blessing. And that blessing is from God. Psalm 127 and verse 3, as we read a few moments ago, uses the Hebrew poetic technique of parallelism. Basically, it states the same thing in consecutive lines, just using different wording to emphasize a point. Behold, Solomon wrote there, children are a heritage from the Lord, line one. Line two, the fruit of the womb is a reward. The word heritage in that verse comes from a word that literally means an inheritance. But notice the words in that verse, inheritance, or heritage, excuse me, reward. There is no way to interpret those words as anything other than a positive blessing. But notice again, They are a heritage or an inheritance from the Lord. God is the one who blesses a family with children. Children are not a curse. They are a God-given blessing. And whether those children come into a family through birth or through adoption, they are a God-given heritage for that family. One of the most beautiful illustrations of this anywhere in Scripture, and I hope you'll turn to this passage, is in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Hannah, recorded in that chapter, was unable to have children. She was barren. But she so deeply wanted to have a child. Her husband, Elkanah, stands out as a a good example of supporting his wife through the struggle. But Hannah prays fervently for a child. She even makes the promise that, should you give me a son, I will dedicate him to your service, to the service of the Lord. And you recall that as as she's praying, Eli, the high priest, doesn't hear her. He sees her. And thinks something's wrong until she convinces him of her dedication and what she is doing. 
But Eli, in speaking with her, he says in 1 Samuel 1, verse 17, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to Him. Now with all that as a background, notice some key phrases that are sprinkled throughout the next couple of verses. At the end of verse 19, the Bible says, The Lord remembered her, remembered Hannah. The beginning of verse 20, note it says, And in due time. Hannah conceived and bore a son. You ever take, you ever take a note of that little fact? The son was a blessing, but only in the timing that God had ordained. And Hannah did not forget that. Because at the end of verse 20, we're told she named this son Samuel. Because, she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. You may have a footnote or something else in your Bible that mentions what the name Samuel actually means. It's a compound word or a compound name. The second part of it, El, is the word for God. The first part is the Hebrew word Shama, which means hear or obey. Shamael is actually his name. Hannah did not forget that this son was one who only came to her because she was heard by the Lord. God hears, or God hears. From the moment a baby is conceived, all the way through that child's life, that child is a blessing from God. They are a heritage, a reward. And we must make sure that we speak that way of children. What's God's view of children? Number three, they are a responsibility. Here is where the balance of the biblical view comes into play. Children are a blessing from the Lord. There's no doubt about that. But the balance is that children, well, they don't rule the roost. Children are not in charge of the home. They're not in charge of a nation, thankfully. They're not in charge of the school. They're not in charge of anything else. Parents are given the responsibility to raise those children to honor the God who gave them life. And that's even implied in that same psalm, Psalm 127. After stating that children are a heritage and a reward from God, Solomon then gave that great word picture in verse 4. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. There is a responsibility that's implied in those words that needs to be considered. We do not have children and then just let them fend for themselves throughout the years of their upbringing. Instead, we act like that arrow-carrying warrior. And that implies we have a target in mind. And that we will do all we can to, if you please, release our children toward, in the direction of, that target. How would you like to be standing near somebody who is pulling arrows out of his quiver and putting him in his bow and just firing anywhere and everywhere. I'm just going to shoot whatever. I'm just going to fire. I, I wouldn't want to be around him. That would be, you'd be ducking for cover for sure, if not running completely away, because he has no target in mind. He's just firing arrows every year, everywhere. If I may be so bold, I think this is one reason we see society crumbling so often, and that is this. We have parents who are just letting children run the home and who really have no target in mind for those children other than just getting them out of the house one day. And so to borrow from our word picture, our society is ducking for cover. And it's truly tragic. As people of God, our target is a faithful walk with Jesus Christ. And we who are parents must take every effort to aim our children in that direction in every way we possibly can. 
Will others help? Oh, of course they will. And for that we are thankful. And we need to seek out the right people to help us. But it's not their responsibility. God has given us the responsibility as parents. Will the church help? Oh, it will. We have a great youth work. Tower is doing a great job. He has good support from the elders. He has good support from so many others. The Bible school teachers do a great job in making sure our young people have a good balance of, of service work and biblical instruction and fun things. On on, on it goes. It's a great blessing to have that as a support system. But it's still up to me to raise my children and to make sure that that's a support to help. The schools, the community will help in some ways. They provide structure to certain parts of life for a child. They provide opportunities for interaction and some other things that are helpful. And for that we are thankful. But it's not up to the school. It's not up to the city. It's not up to the Little League. It's not up to the government to raise my child. It's my responsibility. And on and on we could go, but we get the point. The Bible instructs us clearly that children are the responsibility of parents. Parents, I need to ask, am I aiming my children towards academics first and foremost? Am I aiming my children towards being a great athlete or a great musician first and foremost? Or am I raising them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord first and foremost? That is my responsibility. And no one else has the responsibility to my children that, that I have. No one else will give an account to God to raising of children, my children, as I will. Knowing that, let me quickly, very quickly suggest three things that all of us who are parents can do to get started. I mean, you know, it's, it's a big responsibility, but I'm, I'm not even sure where to start. You know, the kids didn't come with an instruction manual. It would be a lot easier. It would be a really thick thing, but it would be a lot easier for sure. Where, where can we start? Let me give you three things very simply. One is to attend worship and Bible classes together. Just making sure the whole family is present to worship God. And just making sure our children and we are in attendance in Bible classes is a major step in letting our children know that God comes first each and every week. And by the way, that needs to be true whether we are here or away on vacation or anywhere else. So that over time they see that no matter where we are, God comes first. Number two, have family devotionals. These don't have to be long, intense times. I have a nine-year-old and eight-year-old. Trust me, we're not breaking down Ezekiel this week. Okay, it's just not happening. Sometimes all we do is sing a song. Sometimes all we do is have a prayer. But it's amazing how those few moments will make a difference in your family's life when they see that we're going to pause at breakfast or we're going to pause before we go to bed or after school or whenever is easy to just think for a few moments as a family about God or to pray together or to sing together. And number three, pray as a family. When is the last time your whole family went before God in prayer? You've heard the old statement, the family that prays together stays together. And I think the reason that's true, or at least mostly true, is because the family is taking the desires of their collective heart and their, and their collective wishes before God. Now, of course, there are a myriad of other things we need to talk about. It, raising a child to honor God, discipline and specific Bible instruction, on and on it goes. But those three are an easy and simple way to start. They're a great way to build consistency. But the key is to remember that parents are to be the parents. And they're to have the target of heaven in mind, the target of a faithful Christian walk in mind for their children at all times in their home. But before we close, number four, I also need to remember that God's view of children is that children themselves have responsibilities. I want to speak to our children, our young people, for a moment because so far the kids are going, ha, 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 he's getting on to the parents. He's laying it down to mom and dad. But the Bible speaks to young people as well very clearly. 
In both the Old and the New Testaments, the Lord instructed children to honor father and mother. In the New Testament, Paul added before that command, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Children, young people, teenagers, so long as your parents are instructing you in the ways of God and not contradicting the ways of God, it is your responsibility before God to obey them. And it's your responsibility before God to honor them, to show them respect. And I want you to notice something that's not found in that verse. There is nothing found in Ephesians chapter 6, nor anywhere else in the the Bible, that states that you are to show honor to your parents only when they're around. It's your responsibility to show honor to your parents at all times. Now I know for some, that may not be easy, because maybe your parents are not what God would have them to be. Maybe they aren't raising you up as you might think the Bible describes, or you know the Bible describes. But there is still something for which you can honor your mother or your father and your father. Honor them in any way you you can. That still shows that your highest honor ultimately goes to God. But it's too easy for young people quite often to get away from parents, to show honor when they're around, but then get away from their parents and just rip their mom and dad because mom and dad are just dumb. They're just out of touch. They don't know what's going on. The responsibility of God's young person is to always show honor. To always obey in the Lord. And remember Paul's simple words, for this is right. For this is right. I probably have not said anything tonight that you didn't already know. I've probably not really done a lot of teaching in this lesson. But think about the view of children from Scripture that we've spent the last 20 or so minutes thinking about that, about, and compare that to the world around us and how it views children, the society around us and how it views children. Children are considered a burden. For some, they're considered nothing more than a tax break. There's someone I can live my childhood dreams through now that I'm older. There's someone I can domineer. Or someone I can treat cruelly just because I'm bigger and older. There's someone I can say, hey, go fend for yourself. There's someone I defend no matter what they do, even if it's wrong because, hey, they, they know what's right. They're a person. None of those are biblical. Parents, we must have the right target in mind. That target needs to be a faithful walk towards heaven. And maybe your children are grown and gone, or maybe you've never had children of your own. But listen, every adult has influence over some child. And any of us who has influence over any child needs to remember that our work is to help parents, to help parents raise their children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. When we take the influence of the Bible out of society, it changes how we view everything, even how we view children. And maybe... Just maybe. That's why sometimes we struggle to understand how beautiful a picture it is that God calls us His children. When we've changed the view of what the Bible says about that one simple thing, it takes away from the beauty that God our Father says, You are my children. Aren't you thankful that He's a perfect Father? Aren't you thankful that when we need disciplining, He chastises us. Aren't you thankful that when we need instructing, His instruction is always perfect and wise? Aren't you thankful 
that because you can be his child, he will give you the greatest inheritance, an eternal home in heaven. It is a great blessing. It's the ultimate joy to be a child of the Father, the Heavenly Father. So tonight I ask, are you one of his children? Have you become part of his family through the beautiful picture of adoption pointed out so many times in the New Testament? It reminds us that we are brought into his family through the blood of his son to become joint heirs with his son Jesus. We can have the great inheritance in heaven for all eternity. If you're not his child, you can become one by responding to what we talked about this morning, your repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of your sins. And we invite you to do so as we stand and sing to encourage you.